Good evening, saints. It's a great privilege uh, to be here with you as we unfold uh, the riches of God's word and partake of the body and blood of our Lord uh, through his supper. Tonight, I have the privilege of bringing a sermon to you from Psalm 121, a brief but powerful psalm with some of the most precious promises in all of Scripture. So I'd encourage you to turn there now. Uh, I'd encourage you to turn there and follow along closely during um, our brief time together. The psalm can be found on page 516 of the Black Pew Bibles, if you have that. And as you turn there, I would remind you to remember the goodness of God in making his word so readily available to us in our own language. Uh, Let's be regular in prayer for the advancement of literacy and Bible translation efforts throughout the world so that all of God's people can have access to his word as we do. That being said, let me now read the psalm. After that, I'll pray, and then we'll begin. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is to you that we look now as we consider and seek to understand what you have spoken in this text. Lord, you are our maker and the creator of the heavens and of the earth and all that is in them. And you are also our father because of what your son has done for us in his death and resurrection. So we ask, dear father, encourage our hearts tonight with the certainty of your promises to keep and preserve us as we make our way through this very difficult life and journey to our final destination, the heavenly city, where we will see your face and enjoy unending communion and fellowship with you and your people forever and ever. It is in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. This hill, though high, I covet to ascend. The difficulty will not me offend, for I perceive the way to life lies here. Come, Pluck up heart, let's neither faint nor fear. Better, though difficult, the right way to go, than wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. This is what the character named Christian says to himself as he approaches the hill called Difficulty in John Bunyan's classic Christian allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress. Published in 1678, it is the most printed and most translated English book of all time. Central to the book's appeal is the way it depicts the Christian life as a journey, a pilgrimage to the heavenly city. However, this journey is not for the faint of heart. As Jesus himself notes in Matthew 7:14, the path to eternal life is difficult and narrow. And yet, as the character Christian noted, better though difficult, the right way to go, than wrong though easy, where the end is woe. However, does this understanding of the Christian life as difficult surprise you? Is it troubling to you? Does it perhaps seem unfair that the Lord would ordain such difficulty on the road to heaven? 
wouldn't this mean that only the strong can survive? That only those who have the most grit and determination can actually make it to heaven? Well, the answer to these questions is a resounding no, and this psalm will help make that even more clear, since it shows that the difficulty of the Christian life can only be overcome through the resources of God's almighty divine help. And everyone who has God as their father and Christ as their king, no matter how weak, will most assuredly overcome every obstacle on the journey to heaven. And so if you're looking at the very beginning of Psalm 121 in your Bibles, you'll likely see the phrase, a psalm of ascents. This psalm, this places Psalm 121 as in a specific category of psalms, Psalms 120 through Psalms 134, which according to many scholars were likely sung by Jewish travelers as they made their way to the uphill pilgrimage to Jerusalem for one of the three main annual Jewish festivals. It is a psalm of ascent since this journey likely took Jewish pilgrims, pilgrims higher in elevation uh, to the city of Jerusalem, which was situated relatively high uh, among the, the various towns and cities surrounding it. Um, it was likely 25, it's about 2,500 feet above sea level, and it's situated on a high mountain ridge. So this ancient pilgrimage to Jerusalem would not have been easy, which is why we see in this psalm a traveler looking to their destination, grappling with the need for help, and then trusting in the covenant faithfulness of Yahweh to get them there. And so the structure of the psalm will shape the structure of the sermon. Uh, the first point will be, that, will be consider the journey to heaven. This point will cover verse 1 of, of the psalm, which sets the agenda for the rest of the chapter. And second, trust in God's almighty help for the journey to heaven. This is the second point, and we'll cover verses 2 through 8, where we will see God as the source of our help, and then also consider how God helps us in this journey to heaven. So let's begin with the first point. Consider the journey to heaven. In the first verse, the psalmist writes, I lift up my, my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Now, commentators have differed as to the exact meaning or relevance of the hills in this verse. But I would argue that the context of this psalm being a psalm of ascent would mean that it's, these, these hills refer to the mountainous horizon which a Jewish traveler would see ahead of them on their journey to Jerusalem. And so the Jewish pilgrim sets his eyes on the destination, and in light of the destination, he sees the challenges before him, and so he proceeds to consider where he might find the resources to persevere in this journey to Jerusalem. Now, it may seem odd that I've been speaking frequently in this sermon about a journey to heaven, when the psalm seems very clearly to be about a journey to Jerusalem. Indeed, this psalm was written uh, to provide solace and comfort to the Jewish pilgrim as they made their way to Jerusalem. But we must also recognize that there's clearly meaning in this psalm that is deeper and that becomes more clear in the New Covenant. Now, while it not, might not be commonly discussed, one of the most clear truths communicated to us in the New Testament is that the earthly Jerusalem was always meant to be a type and shadow, a symbol, if you will, of the Jerusalem above, the heavenly Jerusalem, which is the ultimate and final destination of all God's people. Therefore, the hilly destination of this psalm can and should be understood by us to most fully refer 
to the Jerusalem above, the Jerusalem of heaven. In Galatians 4.25 through 26, Paul makes a distinction between what he calls the present Jerusalem and the Jerusalem above. In the context of the chapter, Paul makes plain that the Jerusalem above is the true motherland of God's people, while the earthly Jerusalem of the present time corresponds to the old order of the law, which has passed away and been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. According to scriptures like Hebrews 9.24 and Hebrews 12.22-24, when Christ died, rose again, and ascended to heaven, he actually entered the heavenly Jerusalem. And since that occurred, the earthly Jerusalem has lost its significance as the capital city for God's people. However, a day is coming in Revelation 21.2 when this new heavenly Jerusalem will descend out of heaven and be established on earth forever. Until then, though, it remains in heaven, and we enter its gates either at our death or bodily at the second coming of Christ when we enter it in a glorified new heavens and new earth. And so Hebrews 12, 22-24 describes the heavenly city in more detail. I'd actually encourage you to read this passage, Hebrews 12, 22-24, uh, later this week if you have the time. But we know that this new heavenly Jerusalem to which we are destined is not earthly. And since this is not earthly, the journey there is not an earthly one. The Christian journey to heaven is not to be found on a dirt road, but on the spiritual road of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has gone to, heaven, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and those who belong to Christ follow him on this cruciform pathway to faithfulness. Jesus is the way and the only way to the heavenly city, since no one may come to the Father but through him. But before we consider that more fully, let's take a closer look at what the psalmist does as he considers his destination. He actually asks a question. He asks, from where does my help come? He does not simply take for granted that he can make it to his destination, but seeing the rough route he must take, he immediately considers where he can find help. And we must be careful to do likewise. As we set our eyes upon heaven, it is vital that we consider the dangers and the difficulties of our trek. Have you considered the dangers which you face every day on your journey toward heaven? I don't speak of the risk of physical death that we all face. Death is no true danger to the Christian. Physical death is simply a means of angelic transportation to the presence of our Lord. No sooner does a Christian close their eyes in the darkness of death then do they open them in the light of God's presence. So no, I am instead speaking of the very great spiritual dangers and the assaults from Satan, which the prince of the power of the air, which threaten to destroy your witness, to make you stumble and fall in the darkness of sin and deception, and destroy or make a shipwreck of the faith which all of us needs to make it to the heavenly city. These spiritual dangers far surpass anything that we can describe in this visible world. However, it is only when we truly and soberly consider these dangers that we can truly appreciate and seek out and trust in the power of God to help us overcome these dangers. This is exactly what the psalmist does in verse 2, and it brings us to our second point, which will cover the rest of the psalm. Trust in God's almighty help. For the journey to heaven. Look again at verse 2. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Here we see the psalmist affirm through faith 
that the help he needs comes directly from the Lord who created the hills and the mountains that he has to climb. The source of the psalmist's help is found in Yahweh, the almighty creator of all things, who faithfully uses his perfect power to protect and keep his people from all the dangers they face on the way to glory. There is no difficulty too hard for the Christian to overcome because there's no difficulty too hard for the Christian's God to overcome. But do you truly believe this? Do you truly believe this? What do your words, what do our words and our actions actually say about what we believe to be our ultimate source of help? What resource, what help are you really relying on to make it through this difficult life? Is it money? Is it a spouse? Is it a future spouse? Or is it yourself? Do you trust in your own wisdom, your own power, your own holiness to safely get you through this pilgrimage on the way to heaven? What are you trusting in to safely get you through the barrage of attacks and the trials that you will face on your road to glory? Well, brothers and sisters, none of these things, ourselves, a spouse, money, a job, none of these things are able to ultimately keep us in this life, to keep us on the narrow path. Nothing and no one but the Lord God Almighty is able to keep you from stumbling and even, being, and even abandoning the faith that you need to make it to heaven. He's able to keep us from stumbling and from being worn out and torn apart on this narrow path to heaven. The Lord indeed uses many things and people to preserve us, but we must never forget that he alone is our ultimate refuge. So let's be sure to remember this truth and to seek our help from him alone by partaking of the means of grace he has provided to us as we pray to him, as we speak and heed his word, as we faithfully gather together on Sundays to gather with his people, and as we rest in his wonderful promises to us. So Let's look more closely at these promises in the text. How exactly does the Lord help us? Well, the rest of the psalm describes this help in essentially two ways. First, the Lord helps us as our vigilant guardian. And second, the Lord helps us through covenant. So let's first consider how God provides help to his people as a vigilant guardian by looking at the poetic imagery of the passage. Now, The Hebrew word for keep in this psalm can be understood as guard or even preserve. In the psalm, we see various promises for how the Lord will keep or guard us. And these promises are given through various images using the scenery of a difficult hike in a rocky and harsh wilderness on the way to Jerusalem. Sounds a lot like the Christian life. In verse 3, we see the promise that the Lord will guard or keep you by not letting your foot be moved, meaning he will keep you from fatal or injurious falls and slips on the rugged rocks, which would prevent you from reaching Jerusalem. Or in in verses uh, 7 and 8, he promises to keep you from all evil, to keep your life, and to keep your going out and your coming in forever, with going out and coming in being a common biblical way of describing your traveling and your activity. And so the Lord promises to keep you alive, to guard you from evil, and to do all of this perfectly and constantly as you travel to Jerusalem. He is also the God who will be the shade on our right hand in verse 5, 
so as to preserve you from the ill effects of the sun and the moon, shielding you from harsh environmental conditions on the way to Jerusalem. Since the right hand was a Hebrew symbol for strength, given that it is often the dominant hand, this description pictures God's preservation of the pilgrim's strength and endurance from fatigue and illness that could be brought about through perhaps harsh weather and the elements that surround him. And as he does all these things to keep us, he will do them without sleeping in verse 4, meaning there is no time or circumstance where God will not be ever alert and vigilant to keep his people. Now, if we look at all of this poetic imagery through the lens of the new covenant, we know that these promises can't only be understood as the preservation from, preservation from physical evils or the preservation of our physical life, since Christians have suffered great and do suffer great physical evils. And Christians will, before Christ returns, likely lose their physical life. However, these promises apply to realities which are much greater than a physical slip of the foot or the loss of our physical life. Rather, this psalm refers to God not simply as the guardian of our bodies, but as the almighty guardian of our souls. For as Jesus says in Mark 8, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? The soul is the life of a person. It is the spiritual life of a person. The spiritual life of the soul is so important that even if someone dies, Christ describes that as sleep if their spiritual life is still intact. And how does the soul of a believer live? By faith. As Romans 1.17 says, the righteous shall live by faith. Faith in Jesus is the heartbeat of the soul. It is the truest and most ultimate metric of one's well-being, which is why our divine guardian guards our life by guarding our faith. If we have faith in Christ, we live. If we do not have faith in Christ, we are already dead. Peter actually summarizes the deepest significance of this psalm in 1 Peter 1 through 5, when he says that God has promised us an inheritance that is, quote, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so this God will guard and keep us through faith. He will keep us believing and he will preserve us for the great reward to which he has destined us on the final day. As the shade on your right hand, your God will preserve you and your endurance and your strength from all the elements of this evil world, which would threaten to leave you too spiritually fatigued in this race, too disillusioned to keep trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ day in and day out. As your vigilant guardian, it is the Lord, not you, who will ultimately keep you from stumbling off the narrow path to heaven. It is the Lord, not you, who will preserve you from all the fiery darts of the evil one as he hurls trial after trial and temptation after temptation toward you to get you to abandon your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Lord, by his grace, who has brought you safe thus far. It is the Lord, by his grace, who will safely bring you home. And so, brothers and sisters, take time to regularly reflect on how God is the source of your help. Don't take for granted that you're still a Christian today. Look back upon your life and consider the dangers and the snares you've already faced 
and know that only God Almighty could have kept your faith from being utterly wiped out. And so throughout this psalm, you may notice that the promises of protection are actually addressed to a single person and not a group of people. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade. The Lord will keep you from evil. However, what does someone need to do to be included in this you? How does one become a personal recipient of this incredible divine help? Well, the answer to that is that we can only receive this help if we are members of God's covenant people, Israel. This is, therefore, the second way God helps us, through covenant. Verses 3 through 8 in this psalm are actually all covenant promises, which form the basis for the psalmist's trust in verse 2. We see this in verse 4 when the psalmist says that the Lord keeps Israel. And so the question is, how do we become members of God's people, Israel? Well, to put it simply, one must be united to the one true messianic representative of Israel, Jesus Christ. Indeed, according to texts like 2 Corinthians 1.20 and Galatians 3.29, all the promises of God to Israel in the Old Testament belong fully to those who are united to Jesus Christ. If you are united to Christ by faith, then you are a member of God's people, Israel. And the Lord will keep his people, his church, through his son, the great shepherd of the sheep, who will keep his people in the power of his father. And as Pastor Raymond preached from the scriptures this morning, we know that covenantal union with Jesus Christ is only granted to those who repent of their sins and trust alone in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. This is because all people, Jewish and Gentile alike, have rebelled against God and have refused to live in the light of his commands. However, in God's infinite mercy, he sent his only Son, Jesus Christ, to die in the place of everyone who would repent of their sins and trust alone in him for salvation. This Jesus then rose from death after three days, ascended to heaven, and entered the heavenly Jerusalem. He is seated at God's right hand to protect his people, to guard his people. Jesus Christ therefore mercifully bore the penalty for your horrific rebellion against God. He himself was forsaken in your place so that you might be adopted into God's family by faith, and so that the God who turned his face away from Jesus on the cross might never turn his face away from you to guard you and keep you on the road to the heavenly city. And so if you would simply repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of these promises are yours in him. And if you've not done so, come to Jesus today. Come to him today. He will guard you. He will bring you safely to the heavenly Jerusalem. And brothers and sisters who have trusted in the Lord, remember his power. Remember his power in this psalm, that he is your covenant guardian, that you can trust him to make it to heaven, not yourself, not anyone else. You can trust him. And as you remember his power, remember his love, remember his promises, and remember the love displayed on the cross, even as we receive the sacraments now in the Lord's Supper, remember them as a token of his pledge to keep you on your journey toward heaven. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we worship and adore you as our vigilant and ever-faithful guardian and keeper. Thank you for these very great and precious promises to uphold our faith, to guard our souls, and to keep us from the evil one. We long to see your face in glory. We long to enter the gates of your heavenly city. 
But before we do, we pray that you would continue to be our help throughout this life and that we would continue to look to you and to no other as the source of our help from this time forth and forevermore. Amen.